Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is episode 114 of the Distraction Pieces podcast. My name is Scroobius Pip. Thank you for tuning in, guys. The Limmy episode went down well last week. Hot damn, that was possibly the biggest reaction I've ever had um, on the podcast. The the reaction the week before to Marcus Brigstock was fantastic too, actually. Um, a lot of people... Bl- 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 oh, I've got a stutter. A lot of people blown away by his openness um, about addiction and his eating disorder and stuff like that and that was great but last week obviously we had Limmy talk about a lot of stuff from mental health to parenthood to comedy to traveling in first class um to movies and all sorts of awesome stuff so yeah I really enjoyed that and I was delighted to have him on you may have been able to tell that I was quite hyped for that one but I'm crazy hyped for this week because this week I've got a guy called Neil Woods who was an undercover cop um, in the war on drugs for, for for fourteen years, I'll go into that more in a minute because it's particularly relevant at the moment. Um, before that, I should mention Speech Development Records. Big love to Sage Francis and B Dolan, um, who just completed their full run at the Edinburgh Fringe, then a quick UK tour before darting back to America. Um, while they were over, the, they signed a load of copies of their vinyl and CD for sale at speechdevelopmentrecords.com so head over there and grab signed copies of the gold vinyl for sage the midnight blue uh a, a, a vinyl for b dolan and loads of other stuff there's loads of awesome stuff we've got i mean we've got distraction pieces podcast merch we've got a team 3w mugs and t-shirts um for, for those who are new to the podcast i don't mention it really team 3w is is you guys is the hardcore listeners and the the three w refers to the welcome 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 at the start of each each episode um on to this week's episode which feels painfully poignant and timely um after the recent drug related deaths at leeds festival um a weekend or two ago um yeah it feels like uh, as soon as i was seeing a lot of talk of these these deaths i posted about um say why to drugs with dr susie gage which is on the distraction pieces network and stop and search also on the distraction pieces network with jason reed which is where i actually heard of neil woods who's this week's guest um because i think education is absolutely key and stop and so so say why to drugs is an education on individual drugs it's worth listening to whether you use or don't use drugs it's not pro drugs it's not anti-drugs i say this in the little sting but um yeah it's a real education and stop and search is about the legal situation with drugs in this country and i think the two deaths in leeds have made it just all the more important and obvious that we need to get around to legalizing these drugs because how many more people need to die because of this this stupid war on drugs it's become abundantly evident that we can't stop people doing drugs that's just a fact we just can't we can't stop them doing drugs people will do drugs the war on drugs has been going on for decades now and people haven't stopped doing drugs there's more people doing drugs currently than there ever has been so that's not an option but what we can do is legalise them so that they're controlled and monitored and have standards and just basic trading standards and things like that. Um, When was the last time someone died from having a bad pint? 
Now, people die from alcohol regularly. If you listen to Say Why to Drugs, you'll hear actual health risk. Alcohol is the most dangerous drug um, of all the drugs. Where pills and coke and all these other ones become dangerous is the fact that they're illegal, so they're not monitored or, 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 or have a standard to be held. So they're cut with all sorts of horrible shit, and they're sold with... Um, unverified strengths and all sorts of stuff like that which makes them hugely dangerous um if you buy a pint in a shop it tells you how strong it is on the side if we legalized and 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 had had drugs under the control of the the government and 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 proper legal systems that that would be the same you would remove the rat poison and all the other horrible shit that goes into it. Um, it's interesting. I can't remember if it's on, on Stop or Search or, or Say Why to, to, to Drugs. They had a stat that a recent studies and surveys showed that people under the age of 18... In fact, I think Neil talks about it in, in, in this episode. Um, people under the age of 18, the average... I think it's between the age of 14 and 18 felt in this survey a wide survey that it's easier for them to get cannabis than it is to get alcohol because alcohol you have to go into a shop and show an id and so on and so forth cannabis you, you buy off a drug dealer who doesn't need to see id who doesn't need to see anything other than the color of your money so again if cannabis was suddenly in shops then You'd need ID. You'd need you, the, that. Is how we stop the young people from being exposed to, to these risks and dangers. S- some people argue that, um, oh, but drug dealers would still that undercut um, the legal prices, which was an argument I put to I think Susie Gage and 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 Jason Reed. But that's it's it's it's, it's literally impossible. Something like ninety percent of the price on drugs is factored in because of the risk involved in smuggling, in importing and exporting. That's where all these fees are added on that pushes the price up of these drugs. If Tesco's are making cocaine, the average person could not make cheaper cocaine than Tesco's. You know, the drug dealers would still have the risk because it would still be illegal for them to deal in their man in it in that manner. Um, but they couldn't undercut the big business. Um, I'm rambling on. This is a, a long intro. We talk a lot about all of this in this podcast. N- N- Neil Woods is an amazing dude, and I was really excited to talk to him. He's got some absolutely mind-blowing stories, heart-wrenching, inspirational. He was an undercover cop for 14 years in the war on drugs. He's got a book out now called Good Cop, Bad War, which is absolutely amazing, and he's going... It, it, it's going crazy. It's getting amazing reviews. It's being talked about in the broadsheets on TV. It's an, it's an amazing book. I recommend it hugely. I'm going to stop rambling and get into this podcast. Before I do, actually, I'm going to tell you about next week. I've got some sad news, which I touched upon. I've done my spoken word stage at Bestival and Camp Bestival for seven or eight years now. And this year, sadly, it's a tough year for, for festivals, but last minute they've had to cut the budget so my satin lizard lounge spoke a word stage won't can't be at best of all this year but 
what I've said to the guys who I had booked. Again, I had people booked in. It's really sad. I had them booked in. They were looking f- forward to it. It can't happen now. It's not best of all s- f- fault. They're good people. I love those guys. So no hate at all going in their direction. But what I've said to these guys is, right, uh, 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 let's turn it into a podcast. So next week, I've not recorded them yet, but next week it will be a two-part, I reckon. I'm going to sit down with six of the different people who I had booked on the spoken word stage. I'm going to chat to them about their careers, about their projects, about spoken word, about being an artist, uh, living in the arts world, living in the, the poetry world, all sorts of things like that. And then I'm going to have them perform a piece. So you're going to get some poetry. You're going to laugh, cry, and have all sorts of different emotions, and, and, and you're going to get some chat. And the beautiful thing is, because of you lot making distraction pieces, what it is, having this huge audience, is these people who have had a gig, a, a rip from underneath them, the gig that they were going to end their summer on, they're now going to get to do their piece to an audience probably a hundred times the size of that that would have been at our small little stage in the woods at best of all so hope you're looking forward to that next week it's going to be a great one um but let's go on to this week this is episode 114 of the distraction pieces podcast with neil woods this piece of fiction is the intro to distraction this piece of fiction is the intro to distraction this piece of fiction is the intro to distraction I think I can kind of hear myself. Yeah, that's near enough. Um, I'm joined today by Neil Woods. How are you, sir? I'm very fine, thank you. How are you? Um, I'm good, I'm good and excited about our conversation. Um, Before we we get into it, um, there's two reasons for our conversation, essentially. Um, I first heard of you when I started working with Leap UK and and Jason, who does this stop and search podcast but also from listening to stop and search i heard about your new book so let's kind of kick things off with that you've got a new book out good cop bad war right yes that's right good cop bad war um it was released on the 18th of august yeah and essentially it's a a memoir and it uh follows my life through the police service yeah including 14 years of which i spent much of the time working undercover yeah which was primarily for drugs offences. I mean, I did do some other undercover stuff, um, buying stolen cars, um, the, odd, the odd thing here and there, but primarily it was um, it was for drugs. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's what kind of also got you, and and we'll get into a lot of stories from that hopefully. But that's what kind of got you in with the uh, Leap UK a lot, and and Leap UK is law enforcement against prohibition and and jason reed um who does the stop and search podcast and many other things at philippe contacted me and i'd never heard of it but it struck me as as hugely important of having people from a, a lower enforcement whether it be officers or or judges and all sorts of other things or counselors or or, or government members coming together to try and get some kind of conversation going and changes in the in in the drug law yeah absolutely i mean leap is really important and i think it's worth mentioning that it's an international organization yeah 
And it started in the United States, which of course is fair enough because it's the United States which lumbered us with this war on drugs in the first place. Yeah, that whole terminology was... Yeah, exactly. And, and, um, you know, the rest of the world really had to follow suit because everyone following the Second World War still owed the America, America money. So, yeah. so the single conventions, the United Nations treaties all went along with the ideology which came out of the United States and uh, we were all swept on with it. Yeah. But the thing is, the people who have to actually deal with these laws are the police. Of course. And, and eventually, there's a lot of us who are actually seeing the problem with it. Yeah. Know? Because if you're asked to police a moral judgment, you have to make a judgment which is essentially a prejudice. And that's got, that's got no place in policing whatsoever. Yeah. So we should, police should have nothing to do with drugs. The legal system should have nothing to do with people's choices of, of drug taking at all. Yeah, completely. So... We've we started and we're going across across the globe. We're represented in twenty different countries, mm-hmm. and in the UK, it's exciting because we've got two ex chief constables, we've got ex MI five, we have ex barristers, we have military who used to serve in Afghanistan, we have uh, undercover police. There's there's another one, Suzanne Sharkey, other than myself. You know, we've got the whole of the war on drugs covered, right from the poppy fields of Afghanistan right to the streets of Britain. In our, in our experience. so yeah. the, And it's exciting times because, you know, we are being listened to. We're, we're getting access to policymakers. We're, we're meeting. We're getting coverage in the newspapers. It's because, you know, there's people, plenty of very intelligent and wonderful people have been pointing out the faults with prohibition for a long time. Yeah. But people don't necessarily listen to them. Because, you know, the drug war propaganda has been going a long time. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's very easy to dismiss the, the words of someone that you would consider a stoner or that you would consider this or consider that. It's far harder to dismiss the views and words of people who have been, as you said, on all, all levels of that war on drug at every point in every place. So, Yeah, precisely. Um, now before I joined LEAP, it, it was still growing and it was under the shepherdship in this country of Jason Reed and he's done a fantastic job really mm. in organising it, doing the social media and the structure for it. And he's actually our executive director. He, yeah. he, he organises it in, in the UK. And so, um, so yeah, that, that, that's Leap UK and uh, yes. please, please look out for us in the, new, in the news uh, over yeah. the next few months. And there seems to be more and more stuff all the time and at the end we'll give some plugs for how people can, can help Leap and donate and, and book t- talks and speeches and get this debate continuing on and, and, and all the different ways. As I said, Jason has worked on, 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 on Culture High and different f- films which are on Netflix. He's working on Stop and Search regularly. So... It does feel that it's an exciting time that this conversation is starting to be had. But let's kind of rewind back to when you were over in the in the police force, and this conversation <coughs> very much wasn't being had. Um, what was your kind of leap or transition into into undercover work, and what was the drive and motivation? Well, I mean, when I started in the police, I was nineteen. Um, and I was—I didn't realise how naive I was. Really, I was quite yeah. young, quite a young nineteen-year-old. Yeah. And so I went into it with this quite a sort of noble idea. You know, I was going to go into the police and I was going to fight the good fight, catch bad guys. You know, the same, the same, the, the kind of thing. Yeah. You know, I grew up on sort of noble, uh, heroic type fiction, so I, yeah, I, sure. know, I had, a, had a clear idea of what was right and wrong. Yeah. But I also completely believed all of the drug war rhetoric. You know, I, I remember. 
Nancy Reagan on TV yeah. saying that one smoke of crack cocaine and you're addicted for life. Yeah. So, so, so when I had the opportunity, I mean, when I started in the police, I, I was actually quite crap. And right. I, on, I only, <laughs> I only just survived my first two years. I yeah. was very, very poor at it. Yeah. It took me a long while to get used to the sort of confrontation and things. But I survived and I had a bit of a lucky break at the time by getting a, a month's attachment to the Derby Drug Squad. Right. Now they hated they absolutely hated cops having attachments with them because they're all seasoned detectives and they, you know, some young cop, they just saw us getting in the way. Right, I see. But one of them thought, well, why don't we see, I don't know if it's a, something mischievous or not, but maybe they saw something in me. But um, one of them said, well, do you fancy having a go buying some crack cocaine? Mm. So I said, well, yeah, okay. It's, it's, there's some logic there. If they've got a young green cop kind of thing that, yeah. oh, absolutely. that they yeah. feel doesn't look or feel in place in the police force he's the perfect one to pretend he's not in the police force yeah you know, precisely that seems, yeah. That seems logical precisely and I, and I did look young yes that's yeah. right so um so i had a go and uh, i ended up buying some crack cocaine off this this gangster and he was a i, I struck gold he was a particularly nasty gangster yeah uh, who controlled you know, a, a series of runners and controlled the supply in a certain area of a city. And, you know, so I hit gold straight away. And um, that was it, really. That sort of shaped the rest of the life, my yeah. life for 14 years after that. And I spent yeah. much of the time working undercover. And as time went on, the jobs got longer and longer. And so that I would be doing jobs for six or seven months at a time. Wow. But it's worth noting that I, I, it, it quickly became more difficult yeah, and so this is why the longer jobs had to be carried out. You know, you couldn't just do a hit and run. You had to spend time infiltrating a particular area. So it became and getting to know people. A, what was it that was making it more different? Was it the 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 culture and scene that you were going after was becoming more complex and 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 interwoven, or was it? It, it the was it difficulties was a, on your own side. It was a direct um, response to police tactics, right? So as soon as, because it was completely new in this country at that time. I yeah. mean, we had had undercover police work before, but it was in sort of more traditional top end and occasional stuff. Yeah, it had never been done in this country to actually buy drugs on the street right. and trying to work your way up and and get the middle management gangsters. It never yeah. been never really been done. So I was one of the first in this country to do that. So much so that I helped develop the tactics and the training for it wow. on, a, on a regional and national level. Yeah. So, as, But as time goes on, tactics, you know, gangsters talk to each other yeah. and they have this incredible information superhighway called the prison service as well yeah. where you know, people spend enormous amounts of time comparing notes with how the police behaved and how the police caught them. Right, I see. So – you really do have to work very hard indeed as a police officer to continue to develop the tactics and you have to fine-tune it and yeah. you have to become extremely good at what you, what you do yeah. to, to survive doing it. Yeah, and it's, it becomes, tough. It's, it's tough there because when you get it right, as you said, that's only got a certain uh, uh, life to it because if you've got that right with five, six, seven different people and they all have a means – or are all thrown essentially in a building together, then they can all discuss, oh, right, that's how, that's yeah, so how that worked. And yeah, start so the to, tactic to never, the never, never stops developing. So, the, you know, people develop a defence about it. They, they spend more time studying people who they think look too new. You know, yeah. and, and it can be – and it becomes more and more frightening. Yeah. But 
it really should be remembered that it doesn't become just more frightening for the undercover police officers. Yeah. It becomes more frightening for everybody else because the ultimate defence for organised crime against the police is the use of fear. Yeah. So the first concern of organised crime is an informant, a police informant. An informant is the most important tool in the police toolbox. Yeah to fight any crime, but in, in particular it's used for drugs more than anything else. They pay people for information. Sure. So you, know, you pay a heroin user 120 quid for some information, that'll get them an eighth of heroin. Yeah. It'll get, get them a Henry. So there's a lot of motivation to go to the police. Yeah. The countermeasure for that from organised crime is spreading fear. So if you let it be known that if you, that all informants will be tortured to death, then that tends to stop that flow of information, and it mm. does. Now, it took me a long time to realise this. So I, I'm, I'm, by telling you this, I'm sort of cutting short what took me many years to come, to, come yeah. to a conclusion of, but I'm hoping that people understand this a lot quicker than I did. I knew very early on in my undercover career that the war on drugs was a failure. Right. I knew that it couldn't be won. I was still in a position where I could take nasty people off the streets. Yeah. And all the time, I gave up undercover work a few times, but I was actually enticed back into it. For example, in a Northampton job, they said, Woodsy, please come and do this one. We've tried and we're not having much success. And these particular gangsters are raping people as punishments for drug debts as wow. part of their fear and intimidation. And they are terrorising the, um, the city of Northampton, and that was the, the Burgabar boys from Birmingham, and that was the intelligence that was presented to me yeah. at, the, at the start of that job. And so I came back into undercover work. Yeah, of course. Because there's always bad people to catch. And so my tactics, which I had to develop in order to counter the gangsters' use of fear and intimidation, is to, was to manipulate those vulnerable people. Right. So I would be pretending, for example, to be a travelling criminal, a bit of a scally, shoplifter, something like that. And I would befriend some of the homeless, some of the, um, the problematic heroin users, for example, where I did in Northampton. Mm -hmm. And there in Northampton, it, it, took, it took weeks and weeks to yeah. actually woo somebody, befriend them and manipulate them enough for them to actually introduce me to the gangsters... Yeah. To the particular gangsters I wanted to be introduced to. Yeah. And in that case, the, there was a couple I manipulated there in Northampton. I think in the book it's Angus and uh, Susie. Mm -hmm. I, I manipulated those and th they were sort of, they'd been problematic heroin users for some time. They'd both had extremely troubled childhoods. You know, yeah. I got to know them well enough for them to share that with me. But that was the case in almost everyone I met. Yeah. The vast majority of them were self-medicating for some kind of childhood abuse. Yeah. So again, it's not that simplicity of... And, and it's, it, it's, it's something that we've discussed a lot on, on Say Why to Drugs is that the difference between causation and correlation, that, that, that there's certain things that where originally it was felt a certain drug was causing higher rates of certain mental health issues... But then you realise, well, no, actually, there's possibly other factors 
that are causing mental health issues and also causing a dependency on drugs. And it will often be troublesome upbringings and stuff that you're wanting to escape from or, or, or lose yourself from or stuff that's, that's damaged you. So where initial studies would say, oh, they're, they're using heroin and they've got these these mental health deficiencies, like, well, no, that's that's they're both from a different thing. Absolutely. You know? I mean, mo- most drug counsellors will tell you around around two-thirds of problematic heroin users are self-medicating for childhood abuse. Yeah. That's a very common and accepted sort of percentage for that mm. kind of people. Um, and, you know, I met another one in Northampton who who actually said to me, I could I can do my rattle, I can come off heroin, and, and I have, I have several times, mm. but I don't come off it because when I do, I become suicidal. Wow. So for her, it was a rational decision to stay on heroin. Yeah, yeah. And this is what people need to understand. It's, heroin's a very powerful painkiller of mm. the body, but it's yeah. also a very powerful painkiller of the mind. Yeah. And it helps people forget. Yeah. And, you know, in a policing context, we're criminalising these people. Or, yeah. in my, or in my case, I was manipulating I was cynically manipulating them. Really. The sad part there is is you're having to get close to these people, close enough to learn these things, but kind of close enough to learn them to know how to exploit them and to use them to get to that next that next step. Right? Ab- absolutely, I got friendly with these people, and they thought I was their friend as well. And there's mm. so many so many times where I've had I've had that situation. But yeah. you see, from my point of view at that time, I had developed a certain ruthlessness, yeah. which I, th- I think sort of goes with. A sort of survival instinct, really, because you know where the danger increased for me. You know, I had to, I had to be aware of, I had to keep keep alive, really, yeah. and so that does help develop a certain ruthlessness. Yeah, but also, sure. for me at the time, because I was very driven to catch these people who were causing such massive harm. You know, some of these people I was investigating were implicated in police intelligence and in several murders that they've mm. not been caught for. These are the most vicious people yeah. in our society. So yeah. I was very driven to catch them. Yeah. And so because of that, the end justified the means to me. Sure. So that was a decision I was taking to cause some people harm for a greater good. Yeah. So, you know, I, I was making that decision. But it's, um, it's and one of the things that really jumped out on, 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 on the episode of, of, of Stop and Search that you were on with uh, Rufus Hound was hearing you kind of state that you had a realisation that you were the you were, were, were guilty in a lot of this and you were responsible for a lot of the way the drug culture is now and, and things exactly. like that. Those, these horrible people that you've built, as you said, when you first started, they didn't really have undercover stuff in that area. Therefore, their ruthlessness, their their coldness, their cutthroatness has been developed because of work that you and your team's well, have done with the best intentions and trying to to fight this this war on drugs. America has been sh- shouting at us that we're in the middle of, and you've kind of created these monsters. So then it's it's kind of a a Eurobulus kind of uh, and and eating its own tail of right. Well, that I would imagine motivated you even more because it's like right. Well, I really need to to take down these guys because I'm in or we're in some way responsible for them. For making these monsters. Well, th- that's absolutely right, though, because year in, year, year in, year out, the gangsters got nastier. Yeah. Year after year. But it took me a long time. It actually took me till, till I was working in Brighton to realise that 
this never-ending escalation yeah. in violence and countermeasures was literally as a direct res- direct result of my actions. Yeah. Not just my actions, but people like me. Yeah. And very much me, because I've been helping de- develop the tactics, you know, developing think tanks and helping sure. people develop how to, how to cope with these um, this kind of work. But those gangsters wouldn't have got to that point yeah. where they had to have those those um, those countermeasures. They wouldn't have been intimidating entire communities and causing such violence mm. if it hadn't been in response to the policing. So it is the policing of prohibition which yeah. is causing the violence. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a more com- complex and prolonged um, example of the whole kind of if you bring a knife, then we'll bring a gun. If you bring a gun, then we'll bring a bomb. Absolutely. And so on and so forth. But Absolutely. it's stretched out over that time of everyone having to... Because the fact is the the nature of the beast that's being chased and, and fought here when we're, well, when we're looking at the war on drugs or the, the criminal element involved in drugs is it's 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 pretty much impossible to imagine a situation where collectively all criminals involved in drugs are going to go, all right, uh, let's leave it. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Because of police, you know, um, arresting or whatever else and go, all right, well, we've lost here. Let's call it a day. That's that's not realistically going to happen. Therefore, it's only ever going to escalate, right? And the police equally are unlikely, unless we look at, as Leap are doing, drug law and stuff like that, it's unlikely the police are going to go, all right, we'll leave you to it, essentially. So neither of those are realities. Therefore, the war on drugs is a war that no one can ever win, surely. Precisely, absolutely. And if you look at it in, term, in terms of the arm race, arms race, which is what it is, like you've just described, mm. as you say, there's no chance of de-escalation. Yeah. There's no peace treaty is going to sort of diminish the impact of this. The only way for this to end is to declare peace. It's the yeah. only way to win the war. There's already too much in, invested in it. Too much. Well, seven, seven billion pounds yeah. a year goes into the pockets of organised crime in this country. That's crazy. And that's an enormous amount of money to corrupt, really. Yeah. Um, so, so how do you feel the police kind of contributed to to creating um, monopolies in this, in, in this, this drug war, war rather than kind of... You get the feeling that in the in the seventies, it was this kind of people had a bit of gear, people would share around and things like that, and it, it it didn't feel as if the the criminal culture really developed until until that started to be clamped clamped down on. That's right. You can you can blame the current um, growing power base of organised crime again mm. as a response to policing. So yeah. I mentioned a short time ago the, how important informants are to policing, yeah, and in particular to drugs policing. So the, the defence, as I've said, against informants is to be as intem- intimidating as possible. So, for example, every city, every area of a city on the streets, there is a local urban legend of where an organised crime group has has punished an informant. Sure. They all create their own local legends of what happens to informants. There's yeah. one in South Man- Manchester who was forced to drink petrol. Right laughed at for an hour and then set fire to in the boot of a car. Wow. You know, the, these are the kind of things, this is the messages that organised crime groups put out. This is what they want to do. They want to yeah. scare people. So the most successful organised crime groups are the ones that are the scariest. Mm-hmm. It's a simple logic, but it's, 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 a, it's true. So, for example, if someone sets up drug dealing on their own and yeah. they're not connected to an OCG, to any gangsters, an informant will look at them and think, Oh, there's 120 quid in that for me. 
I know a cop who's going to pay me some money to to grasp them up. Yeah. And they'll grasp them up because they're not connected. Yeah. This actually, it, it starts and ends ends there. They grasp them up, that there. person's put in, in prison, that's that whole yeah, that whole problem dealt with and out of the way. There's no repercussion, essentially. Police will even have that reported in the newspaper. Police do successful drugs raid on shut down local heroin dealer. Yeah, but if anyone reads that kind of headline in a local newspaper, say for a medium sized town, I, I would in- immediately worry because the people who fill the gap are the people who have got the backup. Right. So for a long time now. The city-based large organised crime groups have been growing their influence mm-hmm. by various means, but very much so as a result of the police getting rid of that low-hanging fruit. Right. So monopolies are growing. I mean, in any unregulated market, yeah. monopolies will always appear anyway. Yeah. This is a simple economic truth. Yeah, if, I mean, it's, it's uh, an, an easy example for, for those who... Uh, unfamiliar with this 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 world of terminology and understandably um is the whole drive that we often have to support a local supermarkets our local shops because when they close down immediately a tesco's will appear there's it's rare that a local supermarket will close and another local supermarket will replace it as said it'll always be the people with the money and the funding behind them that will come in and go well well we're already set up to deal with this so it, it translates. Perfect, perfect comparison, yeah. yeah, perfect comparison. But, of course, organised crime groups be- become the big conglomerates because they're successfully violent and intimidating. Yeah. And so they are, spread, yeah. they are spreading. There's even been creeping into news stories uh, last year. Um, it, was, it was some of the uh, South West news stories about um, Birmingham gangs spreading their influence. Yeah. And it, it is always going to happen. If you look at the model of the unregulated market and the illicit drug supply anywhere around the world and you will see very very similarities in in terms of the way that monopolies are spreading and in in terms of how corruption is spreading just look at mexico it's it's almost an, an it's a, a complete narco state yeah the government is no longer legitimate it is literally the drug cartels are running that country you yeah. know, if you report a, a, a murder in mexico you have less than 1% chance of the police catching the person who did it. It's literally, That's there crazy, is no more it? policing anymore. Yeah. Now, okay, in the UK, we have a much more stable economy. We have a much more established system of democracy. So we are a long way away from that. But no one should kid themselves. We are the thin end of the same wedge. Yeah, We sure. can only go in one direction. Because, I mean, you said the the how... Um, it's easier to convince an inf- informant to inform on a a, a, a smaller de- dealer or whatever else that, that, than on a bigger group because of intimidation. Equally, surely it's easier for a bigger group to influence smaller police officers or or, or bigger police officers and 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 feed into corruption in that way. In in the opposite way, I guess. Of, of well, the that's it. Group. That's it. Because where you get the monopoly. Then you get a concentration of the wealth yeah. as well. So that's seven billion pounds a year, which goes into the hands of organised crime. As your bigger monopolies swallow up the smaller dealers, mm-hmm. that that wealth is cut between less pieces of the pie. Yeah, and so extremely rich regional gangsters have the money and the power to corrupt the police. Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you an example of where I've come across that that corruption. Sure. 
I was working in Nottingham and there was a lot of pressure for that job because it was around the time, maybe some people listening will remember, around the time when Nottingham was having shootings every day. It, right. was in the, it was in the tabloid newspapers. It was The government was threatening to take control of the constabulary wow. because of the failings of the investigation into the gun crime. It was it was a horrendous situation yeah. in Nottingham. And that was mainly because uh, warring factions between the gun organised crime group and another one and some other people. And so I was working to try and work my way up to get close to one of Gunn's lieutenants mm -hmm. in Nottinghamshire. And I, I just got close to him. After about four and a half months into this job, I'd managed to buy some crack off this particular lieutenant. He didn't normally have hands-on either, so yeah. this, this, was, this was perfect. But in, in his interrogation of me, he had a, a knife pressed against my penis. Right. It was uh, that was it was a fairly scary sort of interrogation as yeah. as, as they go. Yeah, I can bit, imagine. It's a bit surreal actually as well because he had his twelve year old son in the car with him as he oh, was wow. doing this, and he was like a mini me. It looked exactly like him, same tracksuit oh, and everything. Lord. But anyway, I, I I digress. Yeah. So that had just happened, and then the day after, two of the people on the team who was supporting me, had gone off sick. Mm -hmm. So they brought in two people as backup who I'd not met before. Now, when you've been going out on the streets working undercover, you, you tend to, your senses tend to be fairly alert, to verging on paranoia, really. Yeah, of course. And I so, can only imagine. And so one of these people, I shook the hand of these people, and one of them I just took an instant dislike to. Yeah. The hair, literally the hairs went up on the back of my neck. And I couldn't quite place my finger on it at the time, but I went straight to the detective chief inspector and I said, boss, I'm sorry, I just, I'm not happy this guy knowing what I'm doing Yeah. In, in the briefing. Right. So he was great. He said, fine, fine, well, we'll exclude him from it. Anyway, I didn't think much more of that for a while, but then about a couple of months later, two or three months later, my job ended. I think close to 60 people arrested, including the lieutenant, my job led on to another one and a, f a really good investigation by Nottinghamshire Police in which the, all of Colin Gunn's empire was brought down. Mm -hmm. So this is a year later. It turned out that the person I'd taken an, an exception to uh, was uh, a guy called Fletcher who was an employee of Colin Gunn. Oh, wow. He'd been paid to join the police. He'd been paid £2,000 a month on top of his police wage plus bonuses for good information. Wow. And he'd been in the job for seven years. And it, and so that's he, a full, planned out, long-term infiltration of, 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 of the system. It is. And he'd had the instruction to just get yourself into CID. Wow. Now, I was a... I, I would had these safeguards. I mean, even the police officers I, I was working with were not, were not allowed to know my real name. Yeah. You know, it was secret from them as well. But even though we had these safeguards, I was still fairly shocked. It's the, yeah. the, the reality of it hit me. Yeah. But in some debriefs with senior covert police afterwards, the, the attitude completely from the senior officers was, well, no, we're not surprised at all. Of course this happens because with this much money, how can it not happen? Yeah. yeah. And it's worth noting that the only way that organised crime can afford this kind of corruption of our police yeah. is from the illicit drug supply. Completely. And again, it's, it's, 
you not to say that the um the good old local drug dealer but your small-time local drug dealer who again is the people that you would have initially been targeting and taking off the streets because again it's 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 the low-hanging fruit they're not going to have the means or let's be quite honest the 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 forethought to have someone training for seven years and being paid and being you know to infiltrate in that to that huge degree so i said the more the drug industry is pushed and controlled by the greater cr- criminal groups i guess is is yeah the more power it's got and the more the more corruption you're going to find absolutely and it's policing drugs that's taken us to that point yeah um so it's something else that struck me when i've heard you talk and when i've 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 read certain parts about different s- stories of yours is despite and 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 you showed it earlier in in fact but despite the necessity to be cutthroat and to exploit and to do all these different things there always felt feels like a great deal of empathy as well so was that was that an advantage of yours that you 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 have that empathy so you could kind of maybe transition into these groups that bit easier because you could understand it wasn't so much a i'm getting in with these scumbags it, you know what i mean there was it feels like that empathy would have helped you to ingratiate yourself yeah i think that that was one of my main advantages in in why i was so successful in the work that i did is that i did i, I was i did empathize with people yeah which is why i i, I learned a, a great deal you know I, tr- I tried to learn off people all the time so I, I engaged everyone I met in conversation really and spent spent a lot of time get, getting to know people yeah and yes I, I could empathize and when things got really really difficult near near the end of my undercover work it was that empathy which meant that I could you know successfully manipulate people yeah but I mentioned that at the time I thought the end justified the means yeah. of course when when I came to the realization that I was not only was everything I was doing actually futile, it was worse than futile. It was actually em- empowering organised crime yeah, groups. Yeah, and suddenly I'm, st- suddenly I'm stuck with the realisation that everything I'd done wasn't justified at all. Right. Everything I'd done was just causing people harm. Yeah. So, and that's quite a lot to come to terms with. I can imagine that, that must have been a, a, a huge amount to take in. And how long w- were you kind of... Of, of battling with this realization because as big a realization as it is equally you're in pretty deep at that point it's it, it can't be something that overnight you go i've just realized this is wrong guys i'm out you know i'm done with this it must have been a kind of a, an ongoing battle i guess within yourself yeah i mean I, I became sure with the type of work really when i walked away from from a job in brighton i was meant to be there for six months yeah and after six weeks, I walked away. Um, it, it was really just how horrendous the Brighton, the situation the Brighton cops had created there. Yeah, that that made it really clear to me that it, it was almost like their tactics of fast forward or just how how bad it could get. Right, and the fact that there was an inevitability to the yeah. this is this is the way the rest of the country is going to go because right. the crime groups there were just literally using homeless heroin users. As, as proxy dealers right. with the simple instruction that if you introduce anyone else to me, we will kill you. 
And in a situation, and every single one of those heroin users was completely convinced that that's the case because they could all tell me who'd been killed. Yeah. And they could list them. Yeah. And, you know, the the gangsters were claiming these deaths. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that when I, when I saw that, and then, and then, yeah, it did take some time because then it has to sink in in retrospect. You have to yeah. think, review all the things that you've done. It's, it's, it's a lot to take on. It's, 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 it's a lot to say, as you said, not only has it been futile, it's been, it's, it's been wrong. It's, it's, it's been an error. Um, yeah. Yeah, that must be tough. And, uh, in a way, I mean, obviously, obviously, eye-opening, but in a way, motivating. I would imagine to get that kind of snapshot of of the potential future to to go somewhere that seemed that bit fast-forwarded and go, oh wow, this isn't just this hasn't got a, a a happy ending, and not only do I need to step away from this, I need to actively fight against it which is what again you do in leap and all yes yeah, yeah precisely um, I, I i took the view i needed to fight against it fairly quickly if i'm honest yeah but for a while i thought i could do that from within the police because i was a nationally accredited drugs expert yeah and i spoke at conferences you know i was i was con- considered a, a, a particular expert and, and pe- people listened to me yeah so i thought because there are occasionally police officers get access to chief constables forums and you know various potential uh, access to policy drug policy and yeah. i thought maybe i could do that from from an expertise within the police yeah and i was working towards doing that but then uh, ptsd just took me over right and um you know there's an, as you you found from the from the book there's a lot i've had lots of near death experiences lots of crazy sure. things happen yeah. to me and th- those things do add up and of course I had some domestic stress as well, which adds to it. But, you know, I don't know if you know much about PTSD or the effect it can have on you. Not hugely. But one of the worst things about it is you, you can find yourself existing almost entirely in a particular memory that's, that's replaying itself. Right. And it's so powerful, it sort of swamps out all of the thoughts. You can't concentrate on anything else and it just creates an intense anxiety. Mm-hmm. It's worse when you're trying to sleep. Yeah. That can be really a really, really intense thing. But interestingly, it's not the sword to my throat or the knife to my groin that was was the memory that was haunting me. Right. It was the memories of people that I had actually manipulated and caused harm to. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, remembering the the various faces and I could list so many of them. Yeah. Um and, and those were the things that were, were really haunting me. Interestingly, a few months ago I met um great guy called ben griffin mm-hmm. he's the president of the veterans for peace uk yeah uh, he used to be in the sas and he, and he runs this group for veterans who campaign for peace yeah and i was talking about ptsd with him because obviously he knows a fair few people who've suffered from it yeah themselves and he said that actually there's type of ptsd or an alternate diagnosis for this type of ptsd called moral damage mm-hmm and I think it's worth people bearing in mind that we can be damaged by people causing us harm or mm-hmm. causing us fear, but we can also be damaged by causing other people harm. Yeah, sure. And it's the same symptoms. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, have you got any kind of... Again, everything at the time, 
will have seemed like it was for the the right reasons and a good cause. Have you got any examples that spring to mind now you're out of the situation of of, of situations where the war on drugs have, have made things worse for a particular person, made things worse for a particular scenario or a particular individual? Or, or yeah, yeah. Well, there's there's so many come to mind to be honest. Yeah. But I'll I'll tell you about one in, in Nottingham. Yeah. There's a, there's a one of the most important people for me to get in, to get introduced to um, this particular lieutenant in Nottingham was a guy called Cammy. He was on bail for dealing heroin and he'd been dealing as a user dealer for this particular group. Mm-hmm. And I befriended him and one thing I did is I gave him a baseball cap one day because yeah. he'd been wearing this really grubby baseball cap and I gave him this baseball cap and I told him I'd shop- shoplifted um, 20 of them, 21 of them. Yeah. And I managed to sell 20. But I kept this one for him. Yeah. And this absolutely made his day. I mean, it, it won him over so much. It was yeah. just, it was heartbreaking really to think. But I got on with him, you know. He was good company. He, was, he had a good sense of humour and he had a, you know, a wry bit of observation. And he, was, he, was a, he was a great guy. And I found him one day leaning against the shop window and he was crying. And I said, uh, Cammy, mate, what's up? And he said, uh, well, my best mate, because I think Cammy was about 22, 23 at the time, says my best mate from school, who I used to hang around with, he, he didn't follow my path. He didn't get into the stuff I did. And uh, he's just died on a football pitch from a sporting injury. Oh, wow. I says, oh, mate, that's, that's, really, that's really shit. Um, are you going to go to the funeral? And he looked at me like I was an alien. He said, don't be stupid. The last thing his family wants is some dirty smackhead turning up at the funeral. Mm. Which is quite, quite shocked me at the time yeah. because he was quite convinced of that. But I think it's, it's a reminder that, you know, however... Society might look down on problematic heroin users. It's rarely as bad as they look down on themselves yeah, because yeah. he didn't even see himself as being worthy of attending a, a funeral. A funeral of a friend, yeah. But he was a... He, he could have potentially been helped at that stage in that, partic- in that point in his life where he was having that emotional difficulty because he threw himself headlong into more heroin. Yeah. If he'd been helped at that point, if he'd yeah. had some counselling at that point, then maybe he could have been saved, but... From my point of view, I just carried on manipulating him. And that's the key there. It's the fact that there's so many people in this story or situation that, that genuinely need help rather than, than, than persecution or, 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 or being turned in or demonised. As you said, there's a lot of people who are drug users to deal with numerous other things, yet in finding the only way they can to help the problem or whatever they're going through, they've become, by our laws, a criminal and therefore uh, a, a worthless member of society, I guess. Absolutely. To, 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 to many of society and indeed, as you've just, um, as you've just illustrated, to them, themselves as well. Yeah, absolutely. And when he was arrested, he, he was actually on suicide watch. Yeah. Because... Not because he was scared of going to prison or because he was rattling. He did go to prison. He got three years, I think. But mm. because he can, he thought I was his one and only friend. Yeah. Which is heartbreaking to look back on, really. Yeah, yeah. There's another one that comes to mind who, yeah. who um, in Northampton, who I was looking for someone, just someone new to introduce me to some new people. I was just do, trying to do some networking and I saw this guy. He was completely yellow. Yeah. And I thought, he's my man because yeah. he's a heroin user. Right. 
And I knew it was yellow because it would have been hepatitis C. I could tell instantly. It's right. a very common problem. And I remember going to get some heroin with him. I was, I was splitting a bag so that he could introduce me to this user dealer. So I was thinking from the user dealer, then I'd hopefully get another step up the ladder and see where it went. Sure. But I shared this bag with this guy and we went with two other people. And uh, he says, well, I'll, I'll take the bag and you can you can take it and smoke it after because I was making it, I was going to smoke it. Mm. But these three were inject, about to inject. And between the three of them, they said, oh, I've only got two filters. So this other guy said, oh, well, I'll, I'll manage without. We'll be fine. So I'm, I'm starting to panic now because I'm in the middle yeah. of this, this disused toilet in the middle of the race course, which is a park in, um, in Northampton. Yeah. I'm thinking he's going to have a bloody embolism. Yeah. This is a nightmare. But then the yellow face says, oh, this is great. It's the first one I've had in days. I'm thinking, why is that then? And he says, oh, well, I've just come out of police custody. Now, then I'm really starting to panic because one of the biggest causes of overdose is actually heroin users being arrested by the police. Right. Because the tolerance drops if they've, they've tried to remand them in custody. Right. The tolerance drops while they're in the cell. They come out, have a normal dose and overdose. Right. This is wow. like one of the biggest causes of overdoses. Wow. So I'm thinking one's going to have an embolism. The other one's going to have an overdose. So anyway, yellow, I'm, I was a little bit tense, to say the least, thinking how fast would I be able to get to a phone box? For, you know, How far away would some naloxone be? Yeah. But I was a long way away. I didn't have a phone on me at this time. Yeah. So the guy, without the filter, dropped his trousers, went straight into his groin. And I remember thinking, well, I'll know pretty soon if yeah. he's had an embolism because that's going to go straight to his brain. Yeah. And I'm watching him and I'm sweating. And he wasn't dead. Not yet. So then I looked at Yellowface, who went into the back of his hand. And he, st- he looked like he was going to go under. He just started gouching really heavily, leaning yeah. back against the floor, all the muscles in his face flopping down. Lord. And then he wiped the back of his hand across his face, where he'd gone into the back of his hand and he absolutely covered his face in blood. Right. And Dark Humor got a little bit the better of me and I said yeah. oh mate you've got a little bit of something just there yeah and then the other one said oh mate you're covered in blood and he went oh and then he rubbed with both his hands trying to rub it off but all he did is he gave himself this sort of yellow and red marble defect right which we didn't really know what else to do about that yeah but he yeah. was alive yeah because by the end of time I've watched him do this I'm thinking well he's not going under no exactly and he got he's up and he, moving, he's still, active, still yeah. moving he's still moving and I look back at that and I remember walking away from those three just being so thankful that they, they were still alive. Yeah. But, you know, you look back and certainly with the one with the yellow face will be dead. Yeah. Because there is treatment available for people with hepatitis C. But because he was addicted to an illicit drug where he had to go and find that and all of his time is dominated by the need to find that, he hasn't got time for hepatitis C treatment. No which yeah. means he'll be dead. Yeah. The guy who was reckless with his, with his injecting, straight into the groin without a filter, mm. he really isn't likely to have survived much more doing no. that kind of thing. Yeah. And at any safe injection facility anywhere in the world, no one has ever overdosed. Yeah. And no one has ever died of an embolism. Yeah. You know, it is possible to take care of people and keep people alive. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so, I mean, 
when you mentioned um, Cammy there earlier and, and saying that he was he was a nice guy and 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 you kind of have got on with him, this is <laughs> it's going to sound like a very odd question, but I mean, over fifteen years of doing this. Were there any kind of enjoyable times and nice times or or nights off, essentially, from... Because the fact is it's your job to go and socialise in in very... Or in often it will be quite social or social drug-taking situations or whatever else. So were there any times where it was like, this is... This isn't actually as bad, or the the pressure was off for an evening, I guess. Well, yeah, I mean, there was there was the odd time. There was one particular time, yeah. uh, quite early on in my undercover career, the drug squads were thinking, "Oh, this is great. What else can we get him to do?" Yeah. And we got another couple of people involved, and and you know, we, we were having some success. But the Derby, the, yeah, the Derby drug squad yeah. said to me one day. We want you and Kate to go into this party because we've heard there's some really big hitters coming to this. Um, party in Alfreton. Yeah. These big hitters are coming from Nottingham, these gangster types. And it's a free party. So we want you to go in there and suss it out and see if you can catch some bad guys. So we thought, great, we'll go in here. Now, this is the, the autumn, but I don't know if, if you know about the free party scene in this country in the 90s. No. It was generally a reaction to the criminal justice bill, you know, the no repetitive beats, the sort of ban on raves. Right, yeah. It went underground, it went quite organised and it became a real subculture for the type of music and the type of people who go to it. And yeah. in, the, in the mid to late 90s, it was quite a hippie scene, really. Right. And this was a late season one because it wasn't outside, it was in this masses of rooms above this pub. Yeah. It was quite a big party. Anyway, we went in and quite quickly we, you know, we made some inquiries about some drugs and someone said, yeah, yeah, you can, I've got some, and held out some pills. And said, so these aren't bad, but if you want some better ones, there'll be someone coming over from Nottingham so- shortly. And I says, all oh, right, okay, how much are these? Oh, no, you can have these, I've got loads of them. Yeah. And this was the kind of attitude. There was loads of real hippie types, yeah. real fun-loving young people who were there to have fun. Yeah. None of them were so wanting so to make money. The key there is, that's not a drug dealer. That's, no. not, that's someone who had the most viable opportunity to be a drug dealer. They had someone who wanted to pay for drugs. Yes. And they said, no, you're all right. <laughs> that's, exactly. That's, I think that person is further from a drug dealer than, than me, who isn't a drug dealer, because the fact is they're, they're that far in the extreme, I guess. Precisely, <laughs> precisely. So we refused that offer, yeah. saying, no, well, no, we're all right. Because we'll, we'll, all it would have taken is for us to take that and write our evidence up. Mm. And that's a... a Supply class A drug, and, yeah. and that that he was he was stuffed. That's crazy. Yeah. But we just, without even speaking, we just said no, no. Anyway, we spent an hour trying to find these big hitters from Nottingham. We found some people from Nottingham yeah. who had lots of supplies, who said, "Yeah, you can have a couple if you want." Oh, if you want ten, yeah, give me a few quid for them. They mm. were just they were there to make sure the party went well. Yeah. So it wasn't these big drug dealers. These no. big. No money making industry, and no one was no one was drinking. It was all people were in a different state of mind. Mm-hmm. The music was incredible, and so it wasn't me that said it. Actually, it was Kate said, "There is no way I'm doing this. There is no way I'm gathering evidence against anyone in here." Yeah, and it had been start to bother me, but thankfully Kate Kate said it, and I thought, "No, no, we can't." So what we're going to do? She said, "Let's get stoned." <laughs> so I said, "What?" Well, what do you, how do you mean? We'll just get stoned. She says, yeah, I mean, if this is undercover work, if it's the way it's going, I don't want to do it anyway. 
And I yeah. thought, do you know what? Neither do I. <laughs> so at that moment, we decided we weren't. We'd, that was it. We weren't going to do any more undercover work. Not if we were going to be asked to do things like this. And we were just going to have a night out on yeah. on Derbyshire Constabulary. <laughs> so we did. So we scored some. Um, we scored. I think it was some tie sticks and some Indian charis. So mm-hmm. we had a, we had a grass and a, a hash. Yeah. Blunt, which we kept having a sparking and having a quick drag of and putting it out again. Yeah. And we danced to, for hours to some wonderful, wonderful <laughs> tribal house music. It was, the, it was just the best music scene. Yeah. It? And we laughed a lot, yeah. to be honest. We really did laugh a lot. Yeah. And it, we laughed at, even when we came out. And, but we thought, this is it. They're, they're going to be really upset with us. And, and we just sat there giggling. They, they didn't say a word, any of them. Yeah. They didn't say a word. And nothing was ever said about it again. Yeah. And I was still crazy, asked back to do the work. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, well, uh, are we are coming up to the hour, Mark? So I'll, st- I'll, st- I'll start to wrap things up, and I do want to talk about how people, how or what the solutions are in many ways. But um, before I do, the first time um, I, 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 I saw you speaking, actually, I was I was I was there in person. It's the it was after a leap had, had gone into in, in 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 into Parliament, and it was the first episode of it turned into the first episode of stop and search in fact and you you told a story then about when you were propositioned by um a young lady once so can you kind of tell yes. that story again i mean it's, as i said i highly recommend that people listen to stop and search but but, uh, but that was also the first story i kind of heard you tell and it really it really hit, it, yeah, it hit no, nicely no pro- no problem at all i um sometimes i would dress as a bit of a scallion, sometimes I would even go for a more expensive tracksuit yeah. and, and dress up a little bit. I, may, I even went into some wine bars to try and get coke off people. I'd be reasonably well dressed. Yeah. But most of the work I did, I dressed down. Yeah. And sometimes that meant being virtually homeless level of, of scruffy and dirty yeah. and smelly. Now, my backup would drive me, drive me out to drop me off. And um, for this particular one job in Nottinghamshire, they were taking the right piss out of me. Yeah. for how smelly I was and they were undoing the windows and they were saying how filthy I was and just taking the piss generally. Yeah. And so they dropped me off and I was quite aware that I was really, really dressed down. I looked yeah. I looked a mess. Yeah. But I needed to be because the gangster I was meeting up with, the other, the other end of this long road, knew me as a homeless type or hanging around with homeless types. And so I set off along this road, and it's near to the road where the Goose Fair is in Nottingham, so it's a sort of long, curving curving road. And it's on the edge of where part of the red light area is in, in Nottingham. Mm-hmm. This was at half one on a fairly sunny afternoon, and I'm walking along, and I hear this voice ahead of me, sex for sale. I thought, this is, you know, I know it's the edge of the red light area, but this is quite brazen, really. Mm. You know, half one in the afternoon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, in my experience, it's, People don't normally shout their wares out. Yeah. Anyway, I heard again, sex for sale. And I'm looking around trying to find where this voice is. Sex for sale. And I carried on walking. And just as the bend, uh, the, the road went round a bend, I saw this young lady and I heard her say again, sex for sale. And as I was walking towards her, she looked me up and down appraisingly and said, cheap, sex for sale. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I, carry, I carried on walking um, but yeah it's obviously a tribute to the way I was looking yeah, uh, but yeah. you know but you know I told my colleagues that later on and they howled with laughter and 
you know, I, as I said, I used to do lots of training, and I tell people when I train police, they all they all laughed. And in fact, I've told that story to many, many audiences, and in in every case except one, the audience has, has laughed at that. Yeah, yeah, because it's obvious where the humour is. But you know, I I look back on that, and I can see her extremely clearly, like it was yesterday. She was no older than 21, probably yeah. not yet 21. And, uh, you know, that, she, was, she was someone's daughter. She was yeah. someone's sister and perhaps someone, someone was missing her. And I remember she was clutching a can of special brew, desperately trying to fend off a heroin, heroin withdrawal. Mm. It's quite common, you know, strong alcohol is a, is a thing when you're rattling. And she was struggling, and she must have been struggling, for goodness sake, to be shouting her wares at half one in, the af- in a sunny afternoon. Yeah. And, but as the representative of the state, I was walking past her to go and catch a gangster. I can't even remember what the gangster looked like. Mm. Just one of dozens and so many I've caught. Because you get rid of the gangster, there's always another gangster, and there's another one that'll pop up and exploit someone like her, because she was being exploited. Yeah. She was being exploited by, by, by someone. So me as a representative of the, state, of the state and all of the time and money and energy that went into catching those gangsters and pursuing this war on drugs ignored her who was really needing some help and with a fraction of the resources that I squandered in undercover work, a fraction of those resources could have been used to rescue her from the streets really quite yeah. easily. yeah. If she was prescribed heroin in the first instance, she would have been immediately rescued from the manipulation of organised crime. And you can say that about every single one of the problematic heroin users that I met or manipulated over all those years. And I met a lot of them. Yeah, yeah. So so you're highlighting um, a lot of these things and you're doing it in your book, on the podcast, from doing... talks on on itv on on all over the place but it's it's kind of easy to dismiss these things as that's just the way it is and and again you've already highlighted that it is the way it is because of the way we've fought in the past but still it's easy for for joe public to go look that's just how things are it's how it's been for a long time how realistic is it to expect change how realistic a a question is it to, to to ask what can we do about this? How can we change this? Well, I think um, it's a good question to ask how realistic change is. But you see, at the moment, there are incredible changes happening. Yeah. Now, we can do very simple things about it. If you were to break things down into individual policy decisions, yeah. the one we've just been talking about, for example, is heroin. Yeah. If you were to prescribe heroin in the first instance, you would rescue those people from the street. There is evidence already because in Switzerland, they, they, to a limited degree, they do that with heroin-assisted treatment. Yeah. And as a result in Switzerland, they have completely eliminated, almost completely eliminated, street prostitution. Wow. Their crime rates have dropped dramatically. There is evidence from an experiment in this country from Dr. John Marks between 1985 and 1995 that he, where he prescribed heroin to all his patients for 10 years. In that area of witness, acquisitive crime went down 93%. Wow. 93%. That's crazy, isn't it? It's insane. But the most interesting statistic of that experiment in witness 
is that despite there being an absolute explosion of heroin use across the UK, in his area, he had no new customers at all. Wow. Because the gangsters went away to Liverpool for the lack of customers. Yeah. And none of those heroin users had the motivation to sell heroin to anyone else. Yeah. So so the cycle stopped. It's fascinating to see the knock-on effect as well, that, that finding that solution in... In 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 I keep hate using the word in the war on drugs because it, again it's a it's a hideous notion but that slight change in that had a knock on effect on all sorts of other kind of crime and 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 other things that are related to people who are addicts and are desperate are in a, a and are in a desperate situation. Yeah, but we, so it's, it wouldn't be actually such a complicated policy decision. Yeah, to rescue those people. So that's heroin. Yeah, and if people agree with me, then. Lobby your MP, yeah. support Leap UK, and we'll come to how you can help us more in, shortly. Yeah. But that's heroin. You, there is a policy decision you can make for every drug because every drug has its own regulatory problems. Yeah. You know, drugs can be harmful, so we need to get them under control. I think that's one of the things that's, 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 that's key as well. There is, there's not a solution. There's a series of solutions, and it doesn't have to be all in one go either. It can be a, a continuing battle, a continuing looking at, lobbying numerous different policy changes and things like that, that that, that the ones that feel realistic at the time, maybe. There may be certain situations that currently it just feels unrealistic. It feels too far. Well, that's not what we have to focus on. Oh, that isn't the only thing we have to focus on. There's many steps along that path that we can start going along. Absolutely right. So so I've I've mentioned heroin, that the other... The other piece of regulation that is screaming out to happen is the regulation of the cannabis market. Yeah. It is a very simple truth in this country that teenagers can have have access to cannabis much easier than they do alcohol. Yeah. That's because the very simple regulation of a photographic ID required to purchase alcohol, it works. Yeah. No system will ever be perfect, but you ask a teenager how, how difficult it is to buy alcohol from an off license. Yeah. That's because the government tightened up and they have test purchases of off licenses and yeah you know it works really really well and, and your local drug dealer isn't s- selling cans of fosters no no as, as as well it's it's not one of the drugs that comes in the in in on, on the menu as such no exactly and so we can protect our teenagers so it it it's sidesteps the argument about how harmful the drug is if it's the children we want to protect we need sure. to regulate the market yeah yeah so that's cannabis. I mean, yeah. you, you can say exactly the same thing for MDMA. Yeah. Um, I remember, do you, you remember when Professor Nock came out with his comparative study between yeah. MDMA and horse riding? Sure, yeah. I was a parent of young teenagers at that time, or one of mine, one of mine wasn't quite a teenager. And I read those, that study with, with absolute horror, you know. Yeah. I became absolutely terrified as a parent that my kids would want to get into horse riding. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. those figures are absolutely frightening. Yeah. The, the comparisons are not just slight. Horse riding is terrifying. Yeah, yeah. Something like one in th- every 350 teenagers horse rides and in some kind of potentially life-changing incident. Yeah. That's unbelievable. Yeah. So, yes. It, but, but people do get into trouble with MDMA. Yes. But that is almost entirely because of... The unregulated nature of it. Yeah, yeah. The situations in which it's 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 placed. It's, 
by our laws. Um, uh, it's either too strong or it's not the right drug. Yeah, yeah. So Say Why to Drugs is, is, is another podcast on the network with Dr. Susie Gage. And yeah, and that's brilliant as well. We've discussed MDMA and numerous other ones and the thing that comes in almost every conversation is uh, we can discuss this drug here but at the end we're going to have to also discuss what else you might be getting when you're buying MDMA or when you're buying cocaine or when you're buying yeah. ketamine and any kind of legalisation measures take that risk out of the way. We've got um, a two-part coming up on, on legal highs and I use that term with with, with floating finger qu- quotation marks to because it's it, it, they're no longer legal um, there's been changes in, in, in laws there but the dangerous elements of, of, of what were legal is petrifying because you would be able to buy brands that you're getting a different thing in there from one time you buy that brand to the next if if you went and bought, I mean, let's keep it on the topic of drugs. If you went and bought a bottle of Jaeger and when you poured it out, it was vodka, you'd you'd be shocked and you'd you'd argue with someone and you'd <laughs> and you'd complain. But that's the case with these legal hires; they'll be under the same label, and God knows what will be in there. So it's because of the lack of regulation in those kind of things. Absolutely, and we're really good at regulation in this country. Yeah, you know, we're, we're known for positively it. anal at it. Really, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, so. Uh, let's wrap things up on how can people actively help, um, whether it be through the donations or booking talks from the the wealth of of, of speakers that Leap UK has has on offer. Well, I, I've been blown away by a lot of the messages in support of the book. Yeah, I know that people are finding it quite shocking, and I'm appreciating that because. That means that they're telling other people about it, yeah. and so they're share, sharing it on social media. So that's that's a wonderful support and that we're is, already getting. So I, I, again, I need to get the name in again: "Good Cop, Bad War." But as it's when you start to read these stories, and I was I, I was saying to a, a, a you earlier, it, it excites me the amount of press that this is getting because, and it, I mean, I'll use I'll use myself as an example. Even I've had a book out recently, and when I get press. I'm talking about it in a paper, but the fact is, a lot of the time, if the person reading it isn't into me, it's not of interest. And I'm fine with that. That makes perfect sense. But the beauty of this book is it's kind of relevant to everyone in society because it's about the society that we all all live in. So the each bit of press I'm seeing you get and seeing tweets about and all this, it, it excites me because it's like, right, there's a whole new world of people. It's not going to be a case of, oh, Oh, do I know Neil Woods? No, on to the next. It's like this story is relevant. So, yeah, it's exciting that it's getting out there and getting as much as much love as it appears to be. Yeah, no, it's very, very much appreciated for all, all those people who are who are supporting it in the way yeah. that they've said. So, so there's the book, but then, of course, Leap UK. There are several of us who who actively speak, and some of the best in, in the northeast is um, Suzanne Sharkey, and in Scotland we've got Jim Duffy. Mm-hmm. We, we've got others, but you know these these, these people do great speaking events. Yeah. So if anyone has the capacity to organise a speaking event, we particularly love doing them at universities because yeah. universities, whether it's just for criminology courses or other kind of academic reasons, we also particularly love them when they open up to the public because unis always organise them so well. Yeah, yeah, and, and, it, and it's you know it's, it's always so good and, and it's it's great access, uh, it's great great messaging. 
we do things like skeptics in the pub or various other things. But if if someone can organise events and invite us, then mm. it gets our, our message out there. But one thing we do struggle with is funding. Sure. And we we rely on on, on funding all the time. So you know, for travel, for speaking events, for setting various things up. For things that we need to spend money on, like advertising and social media, to increase our reach, we we need funds. So, wh- whatever people can spare, we will be really, really appreciative. We have a donate button mm-hmm. on our website, which is www.ukleap.org. Yeah. So, very appreciative of any donations. Um, happy to send anyone a leap badge if yep. they, which is a. Lovely, shiny thing. Yeah, I've got one. All, they're beautiful. Sent all a, the way from little, America. <laughs> a police badge. It's wonderful. I mean, uh, this this podcast, uh, uh, one of the platforms it goes up on is Acast. And as we're talking now, if you're listening on, on Acast, it's even simpler than that. We will have a link on this podcast now that you can just click and go straight to the, the donation page and donation button. So as we're at the end of the podcast, it's a really easy time to just – click a button and, 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 and become active, I guess, in, in that way. Yeah, that's right. And we are finding that people who've never been active in, in, in anything before, they, they are being motivated by this. Yeah. They, are, they are, you know, they're excited and, and happy to support us. And so if you do support what we are saying and if you want to help bring change and rescue these people who need help from Britain's streets, then please uh, donate to us and help support yeah. us. That's great. Well, uh, we'll wrap it up there. Where can people find you on, on online and keep an eye on all your all, all your comings and goings? Well, my website is neilwoods.net yep. and the best Twitter to follow is at UKLeap. Excellent. Well, oh, thank- we're, on, we're on Facebook as well. Please yes. find us on there. Oh, well, thank you very much for coming along and talking and all the best with everything, with the book and all that's ahead, ahead for UK Leap. Thank you, Pip. Cheers. There we go. That was Neil Woods. What amazing stories. Um, I'm going to keep this outro short because that was a long as hell intro, if you remember back that far. Um, Thank you for tuning in. Please subscribe and all those good things. Also, tune in next week. I said, if if you set your phone or whatever to subscribe and automatic download, if you listen to an iTunes, for example, if you set it to automatic download, then you'll get next week's double episode as soon as it's ready and it's a best of all special of my satin lizard lounge so it's a spoken word extravaganza so check there i'm gonna have hopefully I'm, i've not recorded them all yet but hopefully rob alton holly mcnish um maria ferguson cecilia knapp raymond amphibus and jack rook so it's an amazing a lineup and you'll love it so check that out next week thank you all for tuning in and i'll see you in a bit